0: Ooh, Jesus is good, y'all. I mean, I'm telling you. Thank you for leading us this morning. I'm gonna ask you while you're standing to go ahead and grab your copy of the Bible. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, in about every other row, you'll find a black one. And that black one is the same version I use. And so if you don't see a black one in your row, look behind you or look right in front of you, you'll probably find a black one. If you don't have a Bible take that one home with you. It's our gift to you. We hope you enjoy it. But I'm gonna read to you this morning from Exodus chapter 12. We've been walking through the book of Exodus. We're doing an overview. We're not tackling every verse, but we are looking at the main themes that we find in Exodus. Last week, we looked at the plagues. We looked at the mighty hand of God displayed. And today, we're studying about the mightiest act. The event so significant that it would be mentioned more in the New Testament than any other event in the old. Exodus chapter 12. I want you to look at verses 50 and 51. I figured we'll cheat and we'll start with the end and work our way. Exodus chapter 12. Verse 50, God's word says, all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I am keenly aware that you are the only one who can bring your people out of slavery, that, God, you are the only one who can rescue out of the depths of our brokenness. And, Father, we are supremely grateful for that. And, God, I pray this morning we will see Clearly, just how precious this sacrifice was. How absolutely necessary it was that you bring redemption through death. So, Father, I pray what we see this morning is not just a story from the Old Testament. I pray what we see this morning is you pointing us to Jesus another time. One more time, God, you're pointing us to Jesus, and you're telling us that he is the king we've been waiting for. Father, make that abundantly clear to every heart in this room and help us to worship you as a result. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. A significant event. That's what I've titled this. Really catchy, right? A significant event. I don't know if you're aware of this before I said it, but the Exodus is referred to in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament story. And that surely tells us something about how the Exodus figures into the story of what Jesus came to do. And in Exodus chapter 12, we see that God redeems his people through sacrifice. God rescues his people, and he does so through sacrifice. I want to present to you this morning, from the truth of God's word, there can be no redemption. There can be no rescue apart from sacrifice. And here's the problem. We can't offer a sacrifice good enough. If sacrifice is required, our sacrifices are not enough. Because they're marked by selfishness. They're marked by pride. Our sacrifices are so often self-centered. And they come from the hands of people who have rebelled against God. There must be a sacrifice that redeems lost people like us. And that's exactly what Exodus 12 points us to. So last week, we looked at God declaring that he was going to set his people free from bondage in slavery to Egypt. And he was going to do it by demonstrating his own power. He was going to do it by showing that he is the only God and he alone has the power over all creation. We looked at the fact that the plagues ratchet up in intensity as you go along. Starts with water, moves to dry land, moves to the creatures on the dry land, moves to the humans on dry land, moves to the heavens. And what God is demonstrating for all of Egypt and specifically for Pharaoh who worshiped the other gods over creation, God was demonstrating there is no other king, only him. And the plagues had to happen To show that clearly. Now what we're looking at today is the promise of the last plague. And the last plague was the most fearful of them all. Because the last plague was what? The death of the firstborn. The plagues have gone on in severity to where the last plague is going to be that the firstborn of all the Egyptians, of all the slaves, of all the cattle. They were all going to die to demonstrate that God alone has power over life and death. Listen, we like to convince ourselves daily that we're the masters of our own destinies. We're the ones in charge of our own fates. God is the author of life. He gives and he takes. And he does it all to show that he alone is the king. So you can imagine with this last plague, the fear accompanied. And what I want to walk you through very quickly this morning is a walk through chapter 12 to show you Why you should study and know the Exodus. Why it should matter to you. Not just just that you studied every once in a while, but that you are familiar with the Exodus. Because it is the moment in the Old Testament that points so clearly to Jesus that it's a helpful reminder that God's plan to rescue his people by sacrifice didn't just come when Jesus showed up. It was the plan from the foundation of the world. I hope this is an encouragement to you to know that God loves you this much. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. Let's look at why this is a significant event. How do we know that? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Okay, God has already declared that what's about to happen is so significant that the whole calendar is going to be based on it. He says, when I do this thing, it's so significant, it is now going to become the beginning of the year for you. Just so you know, that means it's a big deal. When you're willing to, listen, we struggle to change times twice a year. When you say we're going to change the whole calendar off of one event, that should tell you, as you read this, this is a major deal. I should probably know this thing Really well. He says in verse 3 Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Now, you should probably be asking yourself, as a studier of the Bible, where did the lamb come from? Why does that matter? Why all of a sudden are we harping on lambs? That's what I would ask myself. Verse 4. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Again, lamb, lamb. What's, the, the lamb has become the central thing in this whole story. Lamb, 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 lamb. Everything is about the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb. There it is again. This lamb is the center of attention. The, your lamb shall be without blemish. Okay, we know this is, a, uh, this is a significant event because it's going to mark the beginning of the year when it's done, and the lamb that's needed for this thing is supposed to be without blemish. Does anybody know what that's referring to? True. You guys are such biblical scholars. You've already jumped to the end of my sermon, and you've completed it for me. I love it. Thank you. You know it. If a lamb is without spot, it means it's special. It's for a holy purpose. That's why you used animals without spot or blemish is because they were for holy purposes. Right? Without defect. This is telling us not only is the day special because the whole calendar is going to be marked by it, the day is special Because it needs a lamb without blemish or spot. It needs a holy sacrifice. Verse 6, you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lamb at twilight. Is anyone left out of this? The whole people of Israel are supposed to do this the whole assembly of the congregation is to have a lamb and at the appointed time God tells them they are supposed to slaughter the lamb and by the way these are the cute lambs that they've raised themselves right they've called they've named it right special must be sacrificed you know what happens in verse 5 and following We see some really weird instructions around what they're to do with this lamb. Can I help you? My Old Testament professor in seminary told me that anytime you're studying the Bible and you come across strange instructions in the Bible, usually pointing to Jesus. Has anybody ever read about the construction of the tabernacle or the temple? Hopefully, yes, you've heard of that. Does everybody know what I'm talking about? You know what a tabernacle is? You know what the temple is? Right? When God told the people how to construct the tabernacle, there's like chapters of how intricate it was supposed to be. Use this for this. Use this for this. Take this and put it here. A lot of instructions carefully put together that we look back on now and go, wow, that's really weird and strange. you got to take different different types of thread and melt them together. And you're supposed to put things on, 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 on veils. You're supposed to have certain metals to make dishes out. A lot of specific, strange instructions. Does anybody remember the story of them crossing the Jordan River before they went into the promised land? And God laid out, the priests are going to be this far ahead of everybody. Uh, They're going to be carrying this a certain way. And when the priests hit this, then something's going to happen. And then you're supposed to set up this. A lot of instructions that to us are just like really weird why you would do things that way. Does anybody remember the story of the battle of Jericho? Talk about some strange instructions. God says in order to defeat this, this powerful city, you're all going to walk around it. And then you're going to do that for six days, and then on the seventh day, you're going to walk around it, and then you're going to do what? Break some pot. You're going to, you're going to, blow, you're going to blow these trumpets, and the walls are going to fall down. Does anybody read that and go, yeah, that's how I should handle, uh, you know, my war strategy. That, that's how we'll win the war on terror. We just, you know, go to Afghanistan and walk around it a bunch of times. Strange instructions point you to Jesus. Because just so you know, the crossing of the Jordan River was not simply about some priests carrying the ark. And when they hit the certain part of the river, it would be stopped up and it would be pushed back. And then they could cross on dry ground. That wasn't the whole point. The whole point was Jesus was going to provide a way into the promised land. Across the sea, across the river which was a picture of sin. You get me? Jericho was not about them walking around and blowing some trumpets. It was about Jesus is the one who conquers the greatest foe, which is sin. When we read here, they're to take a lamb, have it for a certain number of days, and sacrifice it at a certain time, and eat certain foods at certain ways, At different times. It's not just telling us, oh, that's a very interesting plan to spend the evening. No, that's telling us this is about a greater sacrifice that would one day come. But here, notice how intricate it gets. You should keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, right? That's a specific day of the week, right? A specific day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Specific time of night. It's got to go at twilight. Verse seven. Then they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They're supposed to take the blood from the sacrifice and put it over the doorposts. That's odd. He said uh, uh, they shall eat the flesh that night. Roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. That's odd. Do not eat any of, its, of it raw or boiled in water. But roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. That's odd. That's weird but it's all purposeful. Everything in there is pointing us to the deliverance that God brings because the lamb, the food they eat, the dress that they have on while they eat it, not not dresses, but the clothes they wear, are all pointing to the fact that God is gonna rescue his people and they gotta be ready to go. This ain't something where he's waking up in the middle of the night. Okay, it's time to go. He says, y'all better be ready to go. Because when I start to act, you're going to hit the road. And everything about that meal is supposed to prepare them and get them ready to jet out the door the moment God acts. Well, that can't be coincidental. That can't just be some strange facts. That's got to point us to something greater. I'll get back to that. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the... Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which tells you what? What does the Lord's name all capitalized mean in our Bibles? It means the name of God. God has one name. We think it's pronounced Yahweh, but we don't know for sure. We think it sounds like that. Anytime you see the Lord in all capitals in your Bible, that is God referring to his own name. Here's what you call me. And he says, I'm going to exercise this plague. I'm going to strike the firstborn, accept those who have done what I've said, and in that, you will know that I am the only God there is. So God is doing everything in the plagues to show you who he is. Whew, that's big news. That's pretty important. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Oh, we just learned something really interesting. Because what we learned here is that the Exodus, including the plagues, the Exodus is rescue. But it's not rescue for everyone. It is rescue for those who do what? Say that again. What God said to do. God says when I pass through and I see the blood, and and let's let's be honest, God God can see everything anyways, right? So you're not going to be able to, to fool him. But what God says is when you do what I say, when you do what I call on you to do, you will be rescued. Wait a second, so I don't get to make up my own rescue? I don't get to decide how this happens? No, God says, when I go through, when I pass through, and I see the blood on the doorpost, I'm going to know that you did what I called you to do, and that leads to rescue. You know what leads? But then the Exodus is rescue for those who do as God has told us, but what about those who don't do what God has told them? Well, then the exodus is the plagues are not about rescue. The plagues are about judgment. What's rescue for those who do trust and do what God says is actually judgment to those who don't and rebel against him. That's heavy stuff, isn't it? That's major stuff to know that God says, I give you the way to be rescued. But if you don't do and abide by what I say, there is no rescue for you. There's nothing but judgment. That's fearful because it means I don't get to make up the rules. God does. But if I do what God tells me to, I will receive rescue, even though I don't deserve it. Because just so you know, none of us deserves to be rescued by God. But he graciously does it. And that's what's so beautiful He goes on and tells us in verse 14, this this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. How do we know that this is special? Because you're gonna keep on doing it. It'll be a memorial day that you'll celebrate from here on out to remember what has happened. We see that. Verse 25 through 28, he says, and when you come into the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. So even when they get into the promised land and they think everything's been accomplished and we're good now, guess what they're gonna continue to do? Celebrate the Passover. They're gonna continue to remember that God delivered the people out of slavery. And then we run into this very interesting discussion of leaven, And we're told that as part of this feast, as part of this whole process of Passover, they're not to eat leavened bread. Well, I think this is twofold. One, it meant they had to eat it quick. They didn't have time to use leaven to get it to rise at all. Got to eat it Fast. Not only that, but then later on in the New Testament, we actually find that leaven is many times used as a negative metaphor to refer to disobedience to God. But here we're told they, they, they are to remove leaven from the house. And if they don't, they will actually be cut off. He says in verse 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened, From the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. That ain't good. Nobody wants to be cut off or left out. But this idea of leaven is so important that if you didn't follow what God said, you would be cut off. Again, the difference between obedience to what God has said and disobedience to what God has said. And then we get to verse 21. Verse 21, we're told, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. So central to this whole rescue of God is the sacrifice of the lamb. God says you're to get it. And at the appointed time, you are to sacrifice and what God is teaching us is that in order for there to be rescue for God's people someone has to die. Someone has to pay for the sin that's been committed. In order to be rescued from death someone's going to have to die in our place. Why? Because the wages of sin is you know that. That's what we deserve. And God is not a God who just goes, well, you know what? Try not to do it again. You know, just just get out of here. Just don't do it again. No, he can't do that. He's He's not a just and righteous God if he just ignores that sin took place. He has to punish it to be righteous. That means somebody's got to pay the penalty for sin. And if we know the penalty for sin is death, then someone has to die. And God, in his grace, says, I'm not going to have you sacrifice yourselves. If you take a lamb and sacrifice that, that's good enough. Right? So what God is teaching us is that he provides the basis for the sacrifice, all we're called to do is do what he said. So God provides the way. God provides that which will be sacrificed. This wasn't man's idea to go grab a lamb and sacrifice it for sin. This is God saying, if you do what I tell you and if you sacrifice what I have provided for you, then you will be rescued. And so the Bible is teaching us the necessity of sacrifice. Blood must be shed for sin. And when they do what God says, it shows they trust Him. If they put the blood over the doorpost, it's showing God they trust what I'm telling them to do. That's when we do what God says, we're displaying we trust Him. But notice that there is no Exodus. Apart from the sacrifice of the lamb. Now we're told in verse 31 and 32 that after this death of the firstborn. That Pharaoh finally lets the people of God go. Remember he's been begrudging the whole time. going, Starting at no I will not let them go. And then he tried to say okay you can go but you can only go a certain distance. Now. After the final plague, Pharaoh lets God's people go, which, by the way, God said would happen at the beginning of chapter 11. He said, after I do this next thing, Pharaoh will finally let my people go. God knew it all along. He knew exactly what it was going to take. He knew exactly what was going to happen, and it was going to happen in his timing. And in verse 31 and 32, Pharaoh lets the people of God go as he commanded. We're told in verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. They wanted the people of God to leave now and quickly. Why? For they said, we shall all be dead. We got to let these people go now because if we hesitate any longer, they're going to kill us all. <laughs> not exactly love for Jesus, right? Just self-preservation. Uh, Pharaoh, will you let them go like now because we're not, we're, we don't want to die. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. Verse 36, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Y'all catch that? God says while they're scooting out of town, the Egyptians are like, here, take this with you. Here's our gold, here's our stuff, take it with you. God's gonna do what he wants to do. All right, I just wanna make sure you know that. Verse 37, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ram, uh, Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Joe y'all catch that? Uh, does anybody remember at the beginning of Exodus, Exodus chapter one? Does anybody remember how many? of the sons of Jacob were there. Does anybody remember the number of the family at the beginning of Exodus? Seventy. Now when they come out, in chapter 12, we're told there are 600,000 men plus Women and children. Oh, wow. That is a lot of people. Guess what? God has been faithful to his promise he made to Abraham that he was going to make him a great nation. He's going to have more descendants than that, right? You know, they're already seen it happen. Even in the midst of slavery, guess what? Pharaoh couldn't stop the promise of God that he was going to make his people a mighty nation. And here when they come out, we're told they're now so significant that there's 600,000 men plus the women and children and I wanna point you to the next verse because it really matters. This is why you and I should be excited about the Exodus. You wanna see? Verse 38, you should underline it, you should highlight it, you should star it because it's the only reason why reading this this morning has any joy for you. Because if God was only rescuing Jewish people, I ain't Jewish. Most of you in this room, probably not Jewish. Well, there's a problem, right? Because God promised to deliver his people, and in Exodus, they were Jewish people, predominantly, right? What about us? Well, check this out. When they come out of Egypt in haste, we're told in verse 38. You might want to read that. What does your verse 38 say? Who's got verse 38? Who's looking at it right now? Linda, read your version. Does anybody say mixed multitude? Does anybody got anything different than mixed multitude? What does that mean? What a, 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 what what does a, what a, what a mixed multitude mean? That's More than what? More than just Jewish people. Guess who comes out of Egypt when the exodus happens? It's not just Jewish people walking out. Guess who's coming with them? Some of the Egyptians are coming. Listen, y'all. Yeah, y'all y'all got to get excited about something now. I'm going to start poking people. This is good news because we're the mixed multitude. If God's only rescuing Jewish people, what hope is there for us? But guess what? In the Exodus, the central main story of the Old Testament, guess who comes running out of Egypt? Guess who comes running out of bondage? Guess who comes running out of slavery? It's not just Jewish people. It's Egyptians too. Which means God's plan to rescue people isn't just for one group of people. It's not just for white Americans. That God rescues people from all nations, all backgrounds, all languages, all tongues. And guess who comes running out of slavery to sin when Jesus shows up? The mixed multitude. Oh, y'all, come You're going, to make, you're going to make me get personal. <laughs> Revelation 5 around the throne of God. Guess who's around it? Not just Jewish people, not just Egyptians. Guess who's around the throne of God, giving him praise forever and ever? Every tribe nation, tongue, and people are gathered together and guess who they're singing to? The Lamb of God given from the foundation. Ooh. The story of Passover is not just a cute story about one day a long, long time ago, God brought people out by slaughtering a little lamb and rubbing the blood over the doorpost, and then God brought them out. No, Exodus, and in fact, this final plague, is pointing us to the fact that God was going to send someone who could finally sacrifice great enough to pay for all sin for all time so that we wouldn't have to have a feast every year. Instead, we could just feast on Jesus every year, and we could know that he was the reason we were set free because, Jesus... Jesus, as Peter tells us, in 1 Peter, if you're you're not coming to Wednesday night, you should come to Wednesday or Wednesday morning Bible study because we're walking through 1 Peter. And guess what we see in 1 Peter? Peter says that Jesus is a lamb without blemish. Wow, I wonder what they'd be thinking of when they heard Jesus was the lamb without blemish. I wonder if it's Exodus chapter 12. Okay. The people had to rely on the provision of God they couldn't do it themselves and that's the same way with salvation today salvation is not of your own doing it is the provision of God by giving you the lamb to be sacrificed so how does this point us to Jesus well I've given you a few let me give you a few more to close We're told that trust in the sacrifice of God provided results in deliverance to the people who trusted in him and rejection to those who didn't. If Jesus is the Lamb of God, those who trust in him and his death on the cross for them, they will be rescued. Those who refuse and reject God's plan for for rescue will be left to nothing but judgment. Jesus himself brought a new light on the Passover meal. Remember, they celebrated the Passover every year, right? On a certain day or a certain month, they would celebrate the Passover feast together. Guess what Jesus is found doing right before he goes to the cross, He's found celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. But when Jesus celebrates the Passover with them, he tells them new light. He tells them in Luke chapter 22 in Matthew chapter 26 as he gives them the bread that would have reminded them of the unleavened bread that they ate when they came out of Egypt. Jesus gives them the bread and he says this is My body. What's Jesus doing? He's saying that old picture from the Old Testament, it's fulfilled in him. He says the bread they're eating is not simply about some bread back in the day. The bread that people need is his own sacrificed body for them. His death on the cross. Not only that, but then it says he took the cup. The cup, which was the picture of blood. Blood. And Jesus gives it to his disciples. He says, drink, because this is the new covenant in my blood. What's he saying? He said, it's not about some lamb back in the day. It's not about some blood on a doorpost. It's about the fact that there needed to be a greater lamb who would shed his blood. And on the, does, it, does anybody else find it coincidental? That in Exodus chapter 12, the blood had to be spread on the doorposts made of wood. And Jesus would climb up on the cross, and he would spread his blood all over it. See, looking at the doorposts is actually pointing us to Jesus on the cross, hanging there. And Jesus, when he celebrates the Passover meal, says, the bread is my body, the wine is my blood. This is a new covenant, a new thing I'm doing. So when we read Exodus, we're actually reading about what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I've got I've to wrap this up. I'm sorry. I've, I've, I've gone late. I'm sorry. This is just good stuff to me. I don't know about you. This is good stuff to me. Sacrifice was necessary. We see it in Matthew 16, Acts chapter 26. Jesus had to die. He had to be sacrificed. There was no other way. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying to the Father, if this cup can pass from me, but not my will. What Jesus was saying was he had to die and he knew it. He had to die. And Jesus was the only one who could die for our sin. Jesus was the only one who could pay for our sin. No one else could die on the cross for us and be sufficient. Jesus was the only one. Why? Because he was the only one without blemish or spot. And I want to point out to you, finally, that Jesus died to redeem a mixed multitude. Jesus died to rescue the nations. And we get to be a part of that. We as Christians who have been rescued get to go into a world marked by sin and brokenness and rebellion and we get to cry out to a lost world that there is rescue available. Not just to Americans, but to everyone who's ever been created in the image of God. There is rescue available, but there's only one person who can save. There's only one who can rescue, and it's not Joseph Smith, and it's not Buddha. There's only one who was perfect, and it was Jesus Christ. You need him. I need him for rescue. This morning, I know most of you in the room are Christians. I know most of you are, but I'm not going to presume that everybody is. Some of you may be in church your whole lives and have never done it because you love Jesus, but because mom and dad told you to, or society told you you should go, I want everyone in this room to be able to say with absolute confidence, I'm trusting in the Lamb of God. I'm trusting in what He did on the cross to rescue me, not myself. I'm trusting in what He has done for me, and that is enough to rescue my soul. And if you don't know that for sure, you should not leave this place until you know it for sure. And so when we do our response here in just a second, I'm going to ask you to have courage to step out of your seat. I don't care if you've gone to this church for 50 years. I want you to have the courage to step out of your seat. If you don't know Jesus for sure, don't let anyone looking at you make you think any different of responding to the call of God Amen. to fall on Him. And Christians, <laughs> we've we got to be pretty excited about the fact That we used to be dead spiritually, but we've been made alive in Jesus Christ. we got to be at least somewhat excited about that. To go through the rest of our day not looking like we're the most miserable people in the world, but to go through the rest of the day knowing we've been rescued and how everybody needs to hear that good news. And God has rescued you to tell others that Jesus has died for them. This church will grow when we get serious about preaching Jesus. Everywhere we go, not just me, but all y'all, together, preaching and proclaiming the sufficiency of Jesus and his death on the cross, urging people to trust in his sacrifice, not their own, and giving God praise. Why did God do it all? So that you would know that he is the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for your word. God, we wouldn't have this story if you didn't secure it for us. If you didn't inspire men to write this stuff down and to keep it for us over all these thousands of years. God, what a blessing it is to be able to open up the word and to be able to read it. And God, I pray for other people who exist in this world, other cultures who don't have Bibles in their own language, who can't read it on their own. God, send send people to them who will share with them the good news of Jesus. But God, I'm supremely grateful that we can study your word, not just now, but throughout every day of every week. Help us, God, to cling to the truth that you have in your word, and help us to see, God, that you have brought rescue. God, we're not waiting for something else. Jesus has come, and he's already died. And he's already raised again from the dead to show that he had the power over death. Father, I pray that by your word and by your spirit's conviction, I pray you will show people their desperate need to be forgiven of their sin. Show them God so clearly that they cannot rescue themselves. There's no amount of sacrifice, no amount of good work they could ever do that would pay for their sin. And you're not asking them to. But God, every person in the room here would know that Jesus has secured their rescue by his own death, the Lamb without blemish or spot. You are perfect, Lord Jesus. You are perfect and holy and righteous. And we thank you that you are willing to be made a curse so that we might be forgiven. Oh God, if you gave us a thousand lifetimes, we could never fully understand what that means. But we are grateful that it's true. So Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone in this room who has been trying to earn salvation or trying to be righteous on their own or trying to be holy enough that you might save them, I pray today they would see so clearly that they just need to fall on Jesus. They need to confess their sin turn away from their sin and run to Jesus and fall before him and ask for his forgiveness. And God, I thank you that your word tells us that when people ask for your forgiveness, you forgive. Help us as Christians to know that we don't just have cool stories to tell. We have the only story of redemption that there is. And oh God, give us a burning passion in our hearts to wanna share with every human being we possibly can that there is hope and rescue and life found in Jesus. Oh God, I thank you that you are the Lord. May our lives and our actions and our words echo that truth. God, work among your people today. Convict of sin, rescue hearts. I ask you to do it so that more people will worship you. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.